I'm Alejandra Melian. Welcome to Talking Culture. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Ganyangahaga on the land known as Chiojage. We recognize the Ganyangahaga as the rightful stewards of this land. A few months ago, four, maybe five, I sat in a tiny recording booth at the CKUT studio with two interviewees, our mouths pressed close to our mics as we discussed the continued prevalence of the other in anthropology, what will eventually be episode one of Talking Culture's first season. I miss those microphones, and I miss the closeness between my interviewees and me in the studio. I'm recording this in my closet, desperately hoping my upstairs neighbors stay quiet for long enough for me to finish the recording. Still, as lonely and uncomfortable as it is, I'm glad to be doing it. When the chair of my department at McGill approached me about thinking and talking anthropologically about COVID-19 with talking culture, I thought it was a good idea. Even though we are all physically separated from one another currently, my anthropological community at McGill is such a valuable resource of perspectives and reflections that it would be a shame not to work together in some sort of way and do some thinking about our current situation. This is also just what talking culture is all about. It's about bringing anthropology back into the world it studies. Season one will launch in September. We explore why anthropological thought is relevant not only for the goings on of the academy, how anthropology's combination of on the ground experiences and observations with a long tradition of deep thought and critique can provide important perspectives on the problems challenging our world. Right now, on top of everything else, coronavirus is challenging our world. How can anthropologists use years, or in some cases, decades-long research to tackle this, to point out, and hopefully fill, the important cracks that appear when the public is forced to deal with the crisis? It is strange to me that this is the first time any of you listening will have heard me speak on this platform. I've been organizing and recording episodes of Talking Culture for almost a year now, talking about everything from environmental precarity to Zora Neale Hurston. But here I am now, releasing our first episode on the topic of COVID-19. I was hoping that Talking Culture would be introduced to the world in a broader way, as a place to explore the possibilities of anthropology from all sorts of perspectives, from the infinite angles that we can approach our discipline. Starting this way, on such a specific topic, but also such a scary one, sets a tone for the podcast that I hope we can grow out of in the official seasons to come. I am also a bit hesitant to ask that people express themselves about COVID-19 publicly. Thinking in this way, what my first interviewee Samuele Kolu called immediate thinking, can result in shallow responses. There's a reason anthropologists take so much time to think and write. But still, it's important we do this. There are so many thoughts jumbled up in people's heads that it's important that we get them out somehow. We may not come up with many or any answers or solutions in these brief conversations, but they can act as a starting point. In the future, when we think back and reflect more deeply about these strange times, hopefully this can be a reference to what we were thinking about when we were all still in the middle of this. I've structured these interviews in order to create both some sort of consistent reflection between thinkers and to engage with each person's personal perspectives. For the sake of consistency, I'm asking each member of the McGill anthropology community I speak with to reflect a bit on what is difficult about having this sort of conversation, doing this type of immediate thinking. I'm also asking each of them about some worries they might have in terms of how the crisis is affecting our department or anthropology more generally. 
I also take just two questions from Bruno Latour's call published in March this year. He asks us to think about potential protective measures to avoid going back to the pre-crisis production model. What are some suspended activities that they would like to see not come back, and why that activity seems superfluous or dangerous? I hope that these interviews can help trellis your own thinking, and that in the days and weeks and months to come, we can learn from each other's thoughts and feelings during this time and begin to really think about what a post-COVID world could look like. For my first interview on the topic, I spoke with Samuele Kolu. Samuele will join the Department of Anthropology at McGill as assistant professor in the fall. His work focuses on psychic life, affects, and the imagination as sites of therapeutic intervention. After research in Argentina on therapeutic technologies ranging from clinical hypnosis to couples therapy, his new project is on psychopolitics, exploring behavioral addictions and digital forms of life. So here's my conversation with Samuele. I thought I'd start with something that you brought up to me earlier, which is the need to have conversations like this right now. And I was wondering what for you is difficult about having this conversation at this time. Do you think that we can still think properly about coronavirus while we're still in the middle of it? Uh, The short answer is no. I really don't think that instant thinking is a practice uh, that uh, a certain type of academics should uh, engage with. And uh, this is very, for at least for me, this is my personal perspective. For me, a certain type of thinking requires time. And uh, especially for you, as you're an anthropologist and I am an anthropologist, we know very well that uh, in, in ethnography, like in anthropology, more generally like we really need different stages and different temporalities in order to uh, develop our own uh, form of thinking and to me to be able to think is always already to inhabit a temporal displacement a temporal lag which is what uh, you know for Agamben uh, you know he wrote an essay about uh, the contemporary and this is the idea of the contemporary thinker the contemporary thinker is the one who inhabits a temporal uh, disjunction in respect to his own present and I think that right now precisely because of the way uh, digital technologies work the way uh, compulsive synchronicity works uh, where uh, intellectuals are asked to uh, basically produce instant thinking twitter thinking and so like when uh, even <laughs> when even uh, an intellectual like george agamben starts doing uh, instant thinking it, it at least for me starts looking pretty bad uh, we are all like uh, forced to produce thoughts that are fully unformed and uh, we we need more time we need more hesitation. Instant thinking uh, pushes you to to stop hesitating, to stop thinking critically about what you're saying, uh, think critically about the present, and we just come up with just like uh, thoughts that are very unformed. This is one 
you know, way to answer it. On the other side, it's also because the corona situation specifically, the this global pandemic, uh, has a lot of ambivalent and ambiguous dimensions. Because especially for people like me trained in the thought of, you know, thinking about like biopolitics, psychopolitics, uh, there, you know, there was an instant docility to uh, discipline our body in the name of like biopolitical protection of life that I think surprised uh, a lot of uh, intellectuals, me included. And so there are a lot of things that are very strange and ambiguous and uh, it, it will require some time. And so to be asked to say things, I mean, it's really nice and uh, it's nice to hear thinkers like Latour, Agamben, Jean-Luc Nancy, uh, Bifo Berardi, Byung Cholan, you know, produce thought. But like to me, it was like kind of evident that they were producing instant thought and instant thought to me a lot of times is very reactive to the present and it does not inhabit a necessary temporal lag or distance that is uh, you know the ground of a certain type of intellectual work. And why do you think that this need to produce instant thought is happening? Do you think it's because of a need to engage with social media or do you think it's an urge to help in some way? Where do you think this is coming from? Well, of course, just like this crisis, uh, um, you know, this crisis is unfolding within uh, an infrastructure that made it possible. And the, the, inf- the digital infrastructure that made it possible is characterized by a form of uh, what I would call like a compulsive synchronicity. Uh, and I think that, uh, first of all, people are asked to produce thinking because this is the st- our present. Like, uh, our present is characterized by compulsive synchronicity, instant thinking, uh, constant, uh, uh, you know, feedbacks. Uh, and so, like, on one side, this is exactly the type of situation we're into. So the intellectuals were already into, like, social networks, uh, social media. This is what they do, you know, is to produce instant thought. Uh, at the same time, I think that... Uh, there is also a request to hear something uh, from a certain type of intellectual also because it's a pretty confusing situation. You know, like a lot of times, especially in critical theory, we kind of always already have our own paranoid answer to things, you know, like, oh, they, they have declared war to this state, but we know that it's not because of the, you know, it's not because of this reason, but it's because of oil or it's because of money. We often have uh, uh, paranoid explanations that uh, uh, somehow, you know, uh, work for us. Whereas like in this specific situation, I think that a lot of people, intellectuals included, are pretty confused. It's a confusing situation for many of us because it is an entanglement of biopolitical, psychopolitical issues. And it's very hard, for example, to support a critical perspective, a deconstructionist perspective. Like, for example, you know, in the 80s, in medical anthropologies, people might have said something like the vi- the virus is a cultural construction. Whereas like right now, if I say something like that, which could be still, you know, understandable, at least conceptually, I would be right away like uh, supporting uh, the perspective of someone like Trump, <laughs> right? Like, uh, and so uh, the constructionist perspectives are becoming almost impossible 
possible at some level and uh, but at the same time we cannot just buy into uh, the biopolitical injunctions uh, that require a very specific form of docile bodies and so you know I think that is because of like this ambiguity that we, we, you know intellectual are asked to say something about it but at the same time the, the, this compulsive synchronicity does not allow us to say anything really interesting about it. Well, keeping that in mind, um, what are you most worried about in terms of how COVID-19 is affecting either our department specifically or anthropology more generally? And I guess when I say worry, I mean to say, how do you see the way we do what it is we do changing? Yeah, so there are like a couple of uh, things like as usual and this is quite typical in the, in the, the temporalities and the motions of neoliberalism and capitalism in general this crisis is becoming first of all an infrastructural excuse for certain institutions and corporations to take the decisions they couldn't you know they have been waiting for years that is like for example the idea of going online you know the, the online Thing, or like pushing us to be more and more available to produce value that can be consumed by not 50 students but thousands of students around the world for example which is like you know the idea of like the reproducibility of uh, teaching therefore more accessibility but also a product that can be sold over and over and over and over and over again so at some level this is the first that you know the biggest worry for example at the level of the department but at the level of the university in general is that uh, we are being pushed to produce uh, a form of cognitive labor that is going to be digitalized and that that is not done in the name of like free access you know or like a free uh, education education for everybody no the idea is going to be to produce classes that can be sold to students uh, all over the world that you know then can be then have a certi- you know a certification that says like oh I took a class at McGill etc etc so one of the biggest concerns I have have is that this digitalization of teaching may not uh, produce uh, very interesting results at the level of uh, education. Now, the, the second element is that more and more and more like we're being pushed in front of our screens. While at some level this makes things more accessible, at another level for me this is also the end of uh, a very specific type of education that I believe into, which is an education that is based uh, on um, the presence of uh, people, uh, students and teachers in the same space. I really believe that affects uh, redetermine the capacity of students to learn and uh, through screens uh, things get uh, really different. Uh, you know, as you probably know, like in my classes, even like classes that, are, that have 300 students, I don't use any digital technology, so nobody can use like laptops or cell phones. And like they, you know, it is magical to have 300 people that are present in the same room uh, and then it creates a pedagogical experience that cannot be reproduced uh, through uh, screens. This is also because of what Yves Citon, who wrote a very interesting book called uh, The Ecology of Attention, calls a joint attention. You know, most of the times we learn by looking at what the teacher is looking at. 
affectively. And so like this process of joint attention that is like constructing spaces where at the same time we're looking at the same thing becomes absolutely impossible because the synchronicity produced by, you know, Zoom or visual media is an absolute uh, uh, illusion. Uh, There is a lot of work now about, you know, that is exploring how you know, through vision, where co- you know, through screens, we're constantly in a temporal lag, and so it's much harder to pick up on affective cues. I don't know if you already had it, but on Zoom, like meetings are so weird and strange, and I think it's also because of an affective lag. Like it's very hard to pick up on the affect of the person in front of you, and it's like the dematerialization of education. Maybe that's you know, if I had to be, to have an hashtag. I mean, I don't have social media but like the idea would be like you know my my biggest concern is the materialization of education what are some of the current suspended activities out there in the world that you would like to see not come back yeah that's <laughs> it's so funny because uh, um i've been th- I've, I've read that question and it's the whole day that i'm kind of obsessing <laughs> with this question because it, it is very hard to answer in a way but like uh, so i have like two things one that is very personal and you know i mean both both answers will be pretty personal the first one is uh, a type of uh, consumption in uh, you know restaurants pubs or places that i always find utterly useless uh, um, that you know burns a lot of money and that uh, um, deprives me of something that i really miss from italy where the country i come from which is uh, be able to hang out with people in public spaces without having to consume and then this is an activity that got interrupted because uh, all restaurants restaurants and pubs were closed and I really 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 enjoyed going back to uh, be able to be with my partner with my intimate other you know because we're in a in in an uh, immunological bubble so we can hang out together but like the idea is that uh, you know we finally you know don't have to go to a restaurant and consume in order to be together you know like the idea you know the couple form a lot of times uh, unfolds uh, uh, along uh, uh, places of consumption you know like romantic intimacy materializes itself in like oh let's have a date and you know when you want to have a date a lot of times you go and you consume you know, you consume in a restaurant, you consume in a bar, and you just like spend money in these places of consumption that to me are basically depriving my own being from the, the possibility to use a public space where actually you, you, you may be drinking or eating, but you're just in a space. You're not like joined by consumption. So for me, the idea, the disappearance of restaurants and bars for me was magical. Bringing back the idea of like getting a bottle and being outside, like eating in the park uh, uh, where consumption is just something that accompanies your being together there is not like the way in which you are together and uh, you know there are historical reasons you know the romantic couple form evolved along uh, consumption so I really enjoy the interruption of uh, consumption uh, this type of consumption that's an activity that I'm really happy uh, that has been interrupted in my life the second one is a little a bit more uh, complicated uh, and is about temporality again so at some level it is an interruption and at another level it has not been interrupted but I've been thinking about it which is uh, in this period at least for me I have st- 
stopped compulsively uh, responding to emails, compulsively producing a product uh, for uh, the media sphere. And uh, uh, as I said already before, we live in this world where there is like this compulsive synchronicity of communication. And a lot of times you write an email and you always already assume that the other person is, is you know, in front of the screen and like just ready to answer. And like somehow I've seen in this period the emergence of a temporal generosity uh, which is related to uh, maybe the assumption that the other person may be in a vulnerable situation uh, their you know loved uh, uh, others or like parts of their kinship uh, infrastructure may be sick or they may be in the hospital and like so many times in the past month I've felt more generosity more temporal generosity from uh, other people that uh, would understand that we're late everybody's late on everything right now uh, everything is really late it seemed to me that right now temporally we're becoming more available to understand other people's vulnerability which is uh, a paradox because we should always be available to understand that but in this specific moment uh, this is uh, you know a type of interruption that uh, I really uh, enjoyed like even buying things on Amazon uh, and then realizing that even if you have like that stupid Amazon Prime you know whatever you're buying maybe the thing like will get to you in three weeks because everything is interrupt you know delays lags interruption and so like this is a type of uh, activity that is uh, uh, temporal delays temporal interruptions that is really becoming very enjoyable for me because it interrupts like the way in which we're just like wired in uh, processes of consumption and compulsive synchronicity. Yeah, it's it's making us face the fact that we should always have been seeing that we're dealing with other human beings and life happens and that people are all dealing with situations that they could have been dealing with at any time. Someone could always have been in the hospital or dealing with a sick loved one, but I mean, I guess this moment makes us confront that more immediately. Yes, exactly. And it's again about hesitation. You know, I write to someone and then uh, they don't respond. And now because I'm so ideologically uh, prompted to think about the virus, I'm like, oh, you know, maybe they're they're having some problems. Maybe someone got sick. And then I'm immediately, uh, you know, my hermeneutics is immediately more generous. And I think that uh, that's something to keep uh, alive. You know, this type of temporal generosity, you know, to let people be. Could you talk to me a bit about um, aloneness and isolation during this time? How have you been thinking about what this time says about the way that we connect with one another? For me, it is interesting to think, you know, it is a couple, no, three or four years that I I stopped having um, a life uh, uh, mediated by uh, social media, be it like Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, or whatever. And uh, I think that uh, one of the most important things for me uh, has been in my past years in relationship with digital technologies to practice being okay with uh, a certain type of loneliness. And um, right now, it is very interesting because 
through social media, I'm realizing when I'm talking to people, people while being constantly wired in and constantly like going back to the screen in the name of, you know, what's called unexpected reward. That is like you keep going back to your Facebook or your Twitter because you don't know how many notification you will get, how many like messages you will have gotten. So you just like keep going back to it. Uh, People are starting to feel more and more lonely in a very interesting way. And I think it is, first of all, because uh, um, through social media we're developing uh, a type of gaze on our own self that uh, uh, it is particularly uh, limited. And uh, here, like, I really... Don't wanna, I don't want to say any banalities because if now I'm if now I'm gonna tell you something like oh we should learn to be alone uh, in order not to be alone maybe that's maybe that's kind of like an idiotic answer but like what I mean is that right now I'm seeing people somewhat forced to the screen more and more and more because we're kind of expected to be online because the idea is that well you know where where else would you be <laughs> there are people like in Italy. A lot of my uh, friends and family, you know, they've been qu- literally quarantined. They're on a lockdown. And so there is some somehow an expectation that everybody's always already online. And at the same time, I'm feeling that people are starting to feel more and more and more and more alone. And so it is quite interesting to, to see uh, how these two things uh, are going together. There is we're more and more connected and more and more alone. And then I think that this has to do with the way in which social media produce and refract a gaze that we have on our own self that most of the time is is absolutely detrimental and toxic. This is detrimental and toxic because most of the times we're pushed to live our own existence in the name of a public that we don't know. is the anonymous public, is an anonymous gaze. And most of the time this anonymous gaze is producing uh, a form of uh, vision of, on our own self that is absolutely uh, destructive. So, I, I mean, I know I didn't answer completely to your question, but uh, I'm kind of like obsessing about the sentence of, uh, you know, we need to be alone, not to be alone. Like, we need just like shut off connection in order to start uh, feeling less lonely. Like screens, you, you know, as I often think that screens are like literally like munching onto, you know, uh, my psychic life. They just like drain me, suck, you know, just vital energy. And then, you know, I don't know if it happens to you, but a lot of times I have a Zoom meeting after one hour and a half, I feel like so tired and drained, you know? And usually when I meet people, it's the opposite. People give me energy. Whereas like screens have this capacity to somehow drain us and uh, uh, you know on one side they drain us on the other they make us available to be the containers of like negative affects that pass through the screen like fear of death you know in in this corona time through the screen we absorb so much uh, fear for example a lot of times it's, it's a failed operation like even my family like I almost never you know I talk not that much with my family but then right now is the moment in which people want to have like zoom meetings you know and after like one or two or three zoom meetings you realize you have like nothing to say nothing to say and then even communication this is what i call compulsive synchronicity this like compulsive synchronicity needs to be slowed down like we don't have that many things to say before you mentioned fear and i wanted to talk to you more about that 
specifically the fear of disease and how that might be different than other sorts of fear. What's unique about an enemy that becomes part of our own bodies? Well, uh, the, the, the interesting thing about this is that, uh, you know, at least in medical anthropology, but also uh, in the neurosciences and here at McGill in, in the Department of Transcultural Psychiatry, they're really good at uh, in thinking about the question of the placebo, you know, like... Uh, the first thing that I would say about fear is that there, there are a lot of uh, disciplinary reasons uh, for me to think that a certain type of fear make us even more available to whatever it is that is out there. <laughs> you know, like uh, in so many, you know, the placebo effect uh, is a pretty strong uh, neurochemical, biochemical operator that makes us really available to a lot of things. So I just want to like preface everything I'm saying through this idea um, but in general I would say that uh, more and more in this moment what is interesting and maybe this is what was interesting about what Agamben was writing is that every single body has becoming the potential carrier of uh, uh, this virus right and so like the fear is really becoming a way through which we are interfacing our reality as soon as we leave the space of the home and so this is probably the wet dream of surveillance capitalism and a biopolitical society of control where basically you have uh, created or you realize you have uh, a global uh, group of citizens that are afraid to leave their home because every single other living being is positing a threat to their uh, immunological well-being. And so I think that uh, the question of fear is really important, first of all, because of all you know the racial dimensions of this that uh, have emerged, for example, in Italy at the beginning of the coronavirus against the Chinese population, but in general. But the idea of any other body as the potential carrier of an existential threat, I think is a very interesting uh, uh, element that we should really consider because a, it has changed our way to relate with every single being around us constantly. I've never been so scared of interacting with anyone, right? But then, of course, again, the placebo effect is really strong, but also, like, the interesting thing for me is, like, where do we make the cut, you know, sometimes I'm really scared when I'm talking with certain people and I take the distance because they're older or because of, you know, multiple reasons. And then, you know, sometimes uh, people get just closer and it feels okay, you know. And so it's also interesting how fear keeps shifting according to the person you're talking to and according to the situation and according to how you feel about the corona thing, you know. There are some moments in which we're absolutely paranoid, you know, maybe you have like a sore throat and you're like, oh fuck, I have the corona, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, you know, and then, and then you're like, it is happening, this is happening. And there are other moments where you're like, oh, the, what is the corona? There is no virus. And then you go out and it is, so the interesting thing about fear, like the placebo, you know, this is why I link it to the placebo, is that it, it keeps shifting the boundaries where you make the cuts of what's okay and what's not okay. And, you know, in our practices, we constantly break 
hygienic protocols. We just decide when it's okay to break it and when it's okay not to. It's interesting to me because, you know, when you talk about fear so far, we've kind of talked about it in terms of being afraid of getting it ourselves. But then when you use that example of wanting to stand further away from an older neighbor, the fear there was about potentially giving it to someone else. And so I'm interested in where you see this line between being afraid of other people for your own sake and being afraid for their sake. It's an interesting question because, um, for you know, for me personally or my partner personally, you know, we have our own ideas about what would it mean to get it, and uh, I'm open. I'm personally open to die <laughs> right now. You know, I've accepted my own mortality, so if I have to die, it's okay. This situation, strangely enough, has. Uh, um, strengthened my desire or strengthened the understanding that I really care about people around me even though conceptually I might want to deconstruct you know the this situation I really like started caring about my neighbors in absolutely new ways uh, which is the idea well I don't know if this thing is really gonna kill them but do I want to be the carrier of something that might kill my older neighbor you know and so I think that uh, this is why I said it's a very ambivalent and ambiguous moment because even for someone like you know at some level I really also disagree with the way in which we are trying to uh, avoid death you know like this this situation has really made me think about like how absolutely inept is the western scientific uh, cosmology to you know, how absolutely incapable it is to deal with death you know uh, and uh, at the same time i try to protect it and i try to slow it down so it is also true what you're saying it is you know this fear is mostly related to the fear of people around me to die but you know, the, the funny thing is that I'm more scared of, like, anonymous neighbors or just neighbors to die, uh, and, and but not, like, my family members, not because I want them to die. But, like, it's, you know, if this happens to me, I'm like, well, you know, they would have died anyway. Whatever, I would find a reason. Whereas, like, I, I started feeling some sort of, like, a, a responsibility towards uh, the anonymous neighbor in a way, which is a very interesting uh, structure of feeling, I think. Could you talk to me a little bit about the role of screens in your work and the increased role they're playing in our lives during this pandemic? One of the um, most interesting things that screens do, and, and you know, uh, which is pretty banal, but uh, um, is that uh, most of the times, uh, you know, they show us what we see while disappearing. Like the screen itself always disappears. And then this is uh, what really interests me about uh, the work of screens. That is, you know, while we're watching a show, whatever, we never look at the screen. We always already see through the screen. And uh, it is only when uh, the screen breaks or when the screen is not working that we have the capacity to look at it. And then in this specific moment, uh, especially the coronavirus moment, I think it is a very important uh, moment to start thinking about what screens are doing to our uh, existence. You know, I'm really attached to the idea, to understanding the screen as in its capacity to create a, a special temporal cut 
that uh, uh, somehow catalyzes or magnetizes our affective investments. So the screen, like a lot of times, like really like magnetizes uh, our affective attachments, our libidinal investments, and then so the screen is always like the milieu or the space or the site uh, of uh, uh, a lot of like fantasies. And then I'm really interested in how there is this entanglement between our fantasies and what we see and what we're seeing. You know, as uh, in the work of uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, um, you know, he wrote, uh, he, I mean, it's, it's a book that has never been finished, but, you know, in The, the Visible and The Invisible, Merleau-Ponty writes how vision and what we see in visible phenomena are always already entangled with uh, uh, our phantasmatic life, you know, our imaginary, and, and, and the imagination of what we're seeing determines uh, what we're seeing. And so the idea that of the screen right now, especially in this moment, is the capacity of screens to basically activate our fantasies and our imagination about potentially infinite anonymous others that are looking at us. So the screen today uh, is a medium that disappears. We never look at the screen, we always see through it. At the same time, while disappearing, it catalyzes our affective investments and our affective investments are lashed onto or looking for something that I would say I would define as the gaze of the other. We're just like looking through the screen in order to be seen by the screen. But what passes through the screen is this infinite anonymous public. And so like the screen is becoming the medium of this public that is inhabiting us uh, constantly. And so, you know, I draw this from the work of Jacques Lacan, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and a lot of much smarter people that, you know, that wrote about this. But like, this is what interests me right now. Like most of the times we sit down, we look at the screen, and what we're looking at is us being looked at by something else. And then my question is like, okay, what are we imagining that is on the other side? And in which ways is affecting our daily existence? Because, you know, right now, you know, our own personal life, even when it's not on in front of the screen, it looks like Instagram. You know, sometimes I see people and I, I look at them and they're walking to the, to the, through the street and they look like they've been uh, basically uh, changed or fashioned by an Instagram filter. But they're real people, but they look like Instagram filters. And I'm, and I'm realizing that right now, you know, like the screen is really mediating our access to the real, even when there is no screen anymore. I, I guess this has been so much of our conversation already, but do you think that the way we're processing the pandemic is being changed by already being so used to the, to our screens? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, uh, again, I don't want to be the constructivist in the sense of uh, there is no virus, but um, this type of pandemic or the way it is uh, it has been structured uh, would not have been possible without the, the work of screens. Like, uh, the, the screens have constituted uh, the infrastructure which was the condition of possibility for our experience uh, of this pandemic. There would not have been, 
this experience of the coronavirus 20 years ago. Like there is something particular to our time uh, and it is about and it is fundamentally mediated by screens. You know, in alpha second, uh, you know, the 80% of the world around me was already ready to become a screened form of life. We were already ready. Like, the, the, it wasn't even a big, you know, for most of us, especially academics, it was not even a big change. The 90% of the people I talked to, which again, is a very specific type of people, I'm in a very specific uh, uh, situation, but like, uh, a lot of people I talk to, they tell me like, well, nothing really changed. You know, and this is dramatic. You know, someone who tells you nothing really changed in a moment where we are we are told we cannot get out from our homes is a pretty big statement. And so, you know, the the screen has played a fundamental role both in our way of absorbing the news, but also in supporting our fantasy that things can just keep going. You know, the the, the idea that things can just keep going. The screen provided the bridge between an interruption, a global interruption and the idea of like things should just keep going. You know, the screen kept things going uh, in good ways, but also, I think, in radically uh, worrisome ways, especially if we want to think about surveillance capitalism, data mining, uh, you know. Right now, the zoom, uh, you know, the zoomification of relationalities needs to be understood also through surveillance capitalism and uh, data mining, you know, which is like the way in which surplus value is produced today. To me, it's a dramatic situation. Well, that's it for now. Thank you so much to Dr. Kolu for sharing his thoughts with me. This episode was produced by me, Alejandro Malian. Music by Justin Kober. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and come talk culture with us on Twitter at TalkCulturePod or Instagram at TalkCulturePodcast. Stay safe, everyone.